I think that the capsule can continue to serve as a nidus of inflammation, if you will, if you leave it behind. And mm. I, I, the reason I think that's because I've seen patients like that. Um, I also have seen a small number of patients who just had their implants removed by other doctors with the capsules left behind who did have significant improvement in their symptoms. Maybe it didn't completely resolve, but they, they had fairly significant improvement, um, but still wanted their capsule and then go back to get the capsules down the road and they would feel even better. If you're a health coach or practitioner, I have a question for you. How much time do you spend ordering functional lab tests for your patients? You see, ordering from multiple lab companies for your patients can quickly turn into hours of admin time. But there's a new way to order lab tests. Rupa Health is an amazing tool that lets you order from over 30 specialty labs in a single portal. Imagine you're ordering a hormone panel for a patient that includes tests from three different labs. You'd have to log into three different websites to place separate orders and come back weeks later to track down the results. Rupa eliminates all of that by handling all ordering, tracking, and results in a single place and so much more. The best part about Rupa, it's free for practitioners. Just go to rupahealth.com, that's R-U-P-A health.com to join a live demo or sign up to see how it works for free. Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast, where we educate you on real health solutions that will help transform the way you live, feel, and overcome disease naturally. I'm your host, Courtney Versage, along with Dr. Josh Axe and Dr. Chris Motley. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey friends, welcome back. This is the Ancient Health Podcast. We have an incredible guest with us today, hailing all the way from Beverly Hills. We have Dr. Kevin Brenner. He is a nationally renowned plastic surgeon, board certified plastic surgeon, but he has really made a name for himself, especially advocating for his patients, which are predominantly female, I imagine. So I'm really excited to get his take because we have a lot of voices. We have a lot of opinions in the space of plastic surgery, but getting it from the surgeon, from the doctor that's actually working on these patients, I think is going to give us a different perspective. So Dr. Kevin Brenner, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Dr. Chris Motley, thanks for joining us always. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Nice to chat with you guys. Oh, it's a pleasure, Doc. And we really want to get down to having the expert opinion on this because I know that Courtney's had her personal experience and her personal journey through this. And right. we really like for the individual, like the doc who's the expert to like run with it and give us their ideas and their, you know, their expertise on this. So I, mean, I think it's something that's really affected a lot of people and individuals out there. So again, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I would love You're to on. ask, I would love to ask you, you know, I imagine that being a plastic surgeon, you going to school, going to medical school, you know, you probably never thought you'd be doing explants or or even like having that many conversations with women about that because of the, you know, really not understanding maybe the, the long-term health effects or implications of it. What has been your experience for women? Kind of what, what, when was it that the bell kind of went off and you were like, these might be causing a problem and we need to maybe take a closer look at it because I mean, there's, there's obviously kind of been like a major shift around the conversation of BII. Right. Well, for starters, cause that was a very 
complex, complex question. For starters, I actually went to medical school to become a pediatrician, not to become a plastic surgeon. What? Uh, really? That's what, that's what I thought I was going to do, I, I swear. And it was somewhere during my clinical rotations where I was like, pediatrics is not for me. And I just, I love surgery and I particularly love plastic surgery because of the creativity. Oh, um, yeah. So, so that was that. And then when once I decided to do that, which was still a long road because I did residency first in general surgery and then in plastic and reconstructive surgery once i did that um you know I, i've always kept sort of a very broad-based practice in terms of things that i do I, I never i didn't pigeonhole early like some people do in their career early in their career into one thing or the other so but i've always had a very breast surgery heavy practice just because of my background in breast surgery as a general surgeon um and it always interested me and very quickly in my practice, I, I I became sort of known for handling breast implant complications, revision cases, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, which I, and for many years was doing what I called aesthetic reconstruction. So mm -hmm. that is as opposed to like cancer reconstruction. This is really patients who had implants for aesthetic reasons who developed perhaps a contracture or a malposition where the implant's in the wrong place or just a bad result and trying to re revise them and make them look normal again. So that that's sort of where I started. And then years ago, years ago, I saw maybe one or two patients that came in claiming that their implants were making them sick. And at that time, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really think much of it other than if they said, I said, if patients can come in and ask me to put in implants, why shouldn't they be able to ask me to take them out? I didn't know at the time whether it was going to move the needle, whether they were going to get better. But lo and behold, I would take them out and these couple patients did better. And then, you know, one patient became two, became 10, became 100, now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. Mm. And it was about maybe six years, six or seven years ago when. I started to notice a huge increase in patients coming in, you know, saying that their implants were making them sick. And it was probably about five or six years ago when the term BII actually came to be. And, and so as I've focused on that, as I've been taking care of more and more patients, I just, more and more patients get referred in. I, I'm now pretty well known for doing this, even though I do lots of other things, my practice is not uh, narrowly focused only on explant surgery. I mean, I still do facial surgery and doses and liposuction and, and all sorts of different things and reconstruction, skin cancer reconstruction. Um, but it, this is now a huge portion of my practice. Mm -hmm. With the breast implant illness, Doc, many people out there are going to ask, like, what are the basics? Like, why would somebody get sick from a breast implant? Because some people that are listening to it, they're like, and I've, I had one of my good buddies in Austin, Texas, his girlfriend, she was sick completely, like from the first time he met her. And so he was getting a bit frustrated by trying to like, he's a physician, he was trying to take care of her. And she found out she had breast implants. And there was a, a, a practitioner in Austin that did the explant. And then she really recovered like 80%. But at the time when I first heard about this, what is it about the breast implant that makes people sick or what, what is the whole, I, the whole process that makes it sick to the body? Well, that's the magic question. That's what, 
you know, all of us who are interested in this are trying to figure out. And it's also what I don't, I don't really have an answer for it because we don't know 100%. Mm-hmm. What I think it is, is an immunologic response to having a foreign body implant. I mean, everyone who has a breast implant has an immunologic response to it because your body's immune system says, hey, this is foreign. Even if it's sterile, right, i.e. there's no bacteria or viruses on it, it's still a foreign body. Mm. And it doesn't really, to be perfectly honest, it doesn't really matter what the material is. If it doesn't naturally exist in your body, your body's going to recognize it as foreign. So your body actually turns off the implant and creates a specialized form of scar tissue called a capsule. And so every single person who has breast implants has a capsule around their implant. Um, most of the time, it's a nice, normal, normal appearing, thin, soft capsule. They're so thin, oftentimes you can read a newspaper through them. Um, yeah. And and most women will kind of live in harmony with the implant with a normal capsule. Like, and, and most patients with breast implants, even though they have a capsule, are, are doing just fine, but mm-hmm. there is a subset of women and a growing subset of women who don't do well. And that, whether that's a month, you know, a year or 10, 15, 20 years after they had their implants put in, I, I'm now seeing it. And I think part of the problem um, before, had you, had you been having this conversation 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, it would be very different because 10 years ago, I probably never really asked patients how they were feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really like, how are you looking? Like, is everything okay? Are you having any physical uh, demonstrable problems with your implants? Is it hard? Is it in the wrong place? Do they, are they symmetric? But those are the kinds of things that I, that we were kind of, and then quite honestly, what probably most plastic surgeons are, are looking at, like, mm-hmm. hey, are the implants okay? Are the breasts symmetric? Everything okay? Okay, see you in a year. And it wasn't until I started asking patients, like, how are you feeling? And and then very specifically getting into, you know, because I have a questionnaire now, everyone fills out in my office, like, do you have joint pain and how severe is it? Do you have hair loss? Are you having brain fog? Do you have, uh, you know, ner- uh, nerve sensation in your, in your hands and feet? Um, you know, there's 40 to 50 different symptoms. Um, and... You know, and even and even today, as recent as last week, when sometimes when you ask patients to fill this out, mm-hmm. they still don't think that there's anything wrong, or they still don't think that there's a correlation. Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe there is, and maybe there isn't. I mean, the, the the biggest problem with breast implant illness is that the symptomatology overlaps with so many other disease processes. And if you if you know if you have this this sort of spectrum of different symptoms if you just pick one thing out for instance chest pain right lots of things can cause chest pain it could be from your heart do you have coronary disease do you have an arrhythmia do you have um could could you bruise your rib is there something wrong with your lung like all these different things can cause chest pain and and some of those are more serious than others um and some need to be ruled out and, and, and that goes pretty much for every, every presenting symptom. I mean, some people present with, a lot of people present with like autoimmune phenomena, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Well, mm-hmm. you know, people without 
breast implants get Hashimoto's. Um, the question is, is did, did the implants cause Hashimoto's? Did maybe they had a predisposition for Hashimoto's and the, the implants are allowing the immune systems to sort of exacerbate the symptoms of the Hashimoto's? I, I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, because you could, you could ask that for every every single symptom that patients walk in with. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense too. I mean, it is complex. So I think that you can't ever take any one thing off the table. I think that one of the differences now, like just in, in this day and age, is that our our endocrine system is so overloaded. Like we're so toxic. There's so many different toxic threats to our bodies and our immune systems are already like teetering on the verge of being very dysregulated. Like it's not, it's not like it's calibrated the right way. So it, it's not responding in a way that is favorable. And so women are just experiencing wild symptoms. And, you know, I think a lot of things are already existing to some degree and then you add the implants and it's like the straw that broke the camel's back and it's mm -hmm. like every the wheels fall off and everything just goes to hell in a handbasket so right it's like it's like you have an analogy i like to use is like you know the u.s has one army and if you have a thousand soldiers and they're all fighting uh, on one front and then you get attacked on the other front you have nothing left to fight it, right that's so, totally yeah. and, 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 and it's kind of similar. It's kind of similar in our immune system, um, in, in terms of yeah. I think that you know maybe some people have some subclinical thyroiditis, right? You may, maybe you have some inflammation in your thyroid, but like your thyroid levels are normal and you're not experiencing anything or something. And then you have an insult like breast implant, right? Where your immune system's now constantly like trying to wall this off. And, and and by the way, this doesn't just happen with breast implants. It, it does happen with like some types of hernia mesh, for example. Mm. Um, you, you have that, and then like you uh, suddenly different symptoms are kind of start creeping up because you just doesn't your immune system doesn't have the capacity mm. to to rev up and amp up. And you know, a lot of this has to do with with your endocrine system, which you mentioned. And I, in fact, I just had this conversation recently and I have a podcast myself. I had one of my, one of my breast team members, Dr. Nikki, who's, she's a, a naturopath. Mm -hmm. And we had this whole discussion about a term called adrenal fatigue. Now, mm -hmm. adrenal fatigue, if, if you are in naturopathic medicine, which I'm not, but I, I know enough about it now, it's, it's, it's a term that a lot of people use a lot of people probably misuse. Mm -hmm. um, it's very different. It's not adrenal gland failure, but it, it's just your adrenal gland just sort of poops out. It's like the engine can't go to capacity anymore. It's still going, but it's just it just you can't you can't rev to to four thousand yams. And you know what most patients don't realize is that your endocrine system kind of all interrelates. It's not that you just have your thyroid access and then your you know, your sex hormone access, you know, your adrenal access, they all kind of interrelate. So if you, if your body's not able to produce cortisol, which is one of the main things that your adrenal gland produces, that has an effect on your thyroid gland. That has an effect on your FSH and your LH and, and therefore your estrogen and progesterone and testosterone production in men and women. 
Um, mm. And they all kind of interplay. And it's not it's not entirely shocking that pa patients present with this increasingly severe fatigue to the point mm. where they some some patients are really um, really sidelined with their fatigue. Like they can't take care of their kids. They're not present for their spouse. They, some of them can't can go to work, just can't muster the energy that all of us kind of muster every morning, get out of bed and do the things that we do. Well, it's saying, Doc, when you like, I think that's really important because when you say they can't get out of bed, they can't, you know, be with their family. When uh, and when an individual comes in, and are those like the telltale signs? Like when somebody, it, you know, even if you hear for the grapevine, like you have a patient that wants to come in to see you, and you know they they are prone to have this, that you say they may have an breast implant illness. Is that what's something on your questionnaire that people say like, I'm totally tired, I'm totally fatigued. Do you also look at like their lab reports and tell them like we need to get, run a lab on you, or is it something you suggest to them to go do? That gives you an indication that they may have issues with their breast implant illness. That's a great question. I actually see both ends of the spectrum, but, but at this point in my career, to be perfectly honest, most patients that come in have already kind of gone down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Most patients have been to their primary care doc, whether that be their, their ob gynecologist or their internist or their family practitioner, um, and, and had, you know, whatever worked up, whatever symptoms worked up. And then usually uh, for some of the more kind of serious things, those get farmed out to mm. specialists like cardiology, rheumatology, neurology, gastroenterology. Like these are, you know, all, all the patients come in, they're like, oh, I've been to 10 doctors already. Mm. And all my lab tests are normal. No one can figure out what's going on. Um, and they're just you know, not only are they not feeling well, but they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. They've also usually, you know, put forth a great amount of time, energy, and money to do that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've been a patient and I know what it takes to try to coordinate one doctor's appointment into your schedule, let alone going to 10 different doctors on multiple occasions. I mean, it's becomes a career for some people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had patients come in with their husband with a stack of, you know, a stack of, consult notes from different from different people I, I even had one patient that I, that I distinctly remember who came in with her husband and he had two stacks because he had they had originally been in the kaiser system got no answers there finally got some real insurance and then did it in the private world uh, mm -hmm. and still had no answer and uh, and lo and behold it was her implants so we took them out and, and and she did better and you know listen i i don't i don't I don't try to um, upsell us at all because if there's no guarantee mm -hmm. that taking someone's implants and taking another capsule is going to make them better or is going to even improve their symptoms at all. But about 80 to 90% of patients do have some improvement in some degree. And, um, you know, 89%, I'm sorry, 80 to 90% rather is, is pretty good. And now does that mean that there are some patients that don't feel better or don't feel appreciably better? Yes. But that doesn't mean that we need to stop taking care of the ones that do. And so the yeah. the big question for us and the kind of focus of where I think our research needs to be is how do you figure out who those patients are? Mm. How do you figure out, A, who is, uh, you know, predestined to develop, uh, you know, systemic illness with an implant? And then the next question is, is if you do develop it, 
you know, who's going to do better? Yeah, you know, who's going to who's going to have improvement in their symptoms if you take if you take them out? Now, I don't I don't know how we're going to figure that out, but we're trying. Yeah, I think understanding individual health, you know, people really that kind of like N of one and really knowing the bio individual is the only way just because there's and there's so many factors. But I think that most of us are not that educated. I mean, a lot of people that are listening to your podcast and our podcast and other, you know, really trying to access resources are trying to put the pieces together, but it's really not a part of our culture to like to, for people to understand how their bodies work, like other than maybe like biology, right. you know, I mean, that's, I feel like that's a total miss. Um, well, that's a whole nother conversation. I'm not trying to open that can of worms. Oh, great. That Our education good. system is definitely screwy in this country. There's no question. About that. Um, but, you know, it, First of all, part of my, that's why I spend so much time with patients when they, when they come in, because part of my job is to educate them. Even though most of my patients are quite well-read by the time they come in, um, I don't know if what they've read is the right things. And so I just treat everyone kind of the same, start from square one. Here's, here's, here's the explanation of what I think is going on. Mm-hmm. Here's this breast implant element. This is what we can do. This is what, you know, if yes, I think surgery is going to help you. No, I don't think surgery is going to help you. And, and kind of going through step by step, here are the logistics, et cetera. And so a lot of a lot of the consult time is, is just that. It's, edu- it's education, which is what it should be, right? That's why people come to me because for this specific thing, because I know a lot about it. Um, the, the, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, you're totally good. The, um, but yeah, what I tell people and what I think often gets recognized, uh, gets overlooked rather, is that you really should trust your intuition. And, I, mm. and I've seen it so many times over and over again. Now, trust your intuition and in saying that all doctors and medicine are, are bad are two separate things. Mm-hmm. There are outliers in any profession. There are there are doctors who are terrible and don't know what they're doing. There are surgeons who are terrible and don't know what they're doing. And that goes for lawyers and that goes for business people and that goes for everything. Um, and as, as a rule, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think you should trust your physician if you, you know, usually people, when you talk to someone, if you think that, if you think that someone's trustworthy, Usually you trust trust your physician, and I still think you should trust your physician, trust that, the, that they have your best interest in mind. Mm. Um, but just because they have your best interest in mind doesn't necessarily translate to them knowing what the problem is or how to fix it, mm. if it's fixable. And, and the other thing is that I hear, and this is only because I hear it from so many people, who get sort of brushed off by their physician, whether it's their primary care physician or their plastic surgeon or other surgeons, um, they just get, are told that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. It's in there. Some people, some people are told that they're crazy. Um, and yet I, I know like you can, you can, I can usually sense it now after reading through paperwork and interviewing a patient. I can sense when someone is really not feeling, feeling well. And usually they know that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Like if you know that something's wrong, most people know when something's wrong. And so it's super important that if you really think that something is wrong, if something doesn't seem quite right, to be persistent about it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting the answers from doctor number one, then you should go to doctor number two. And if you're not getting it from doctor number two, you should get it from doctor number three. And and even though it's that can be um, costly in terms of time and money and energy, you know, it's, you know, at what cost, it's what's most important to you, spending that time or mm-hmm. getting your help. Yeah, I mean, cause doc, I can tell that you're really like, when you say that you can talk to somebody, and you can tell, like, right when you talk to them, because I can tell, like, in Chinese medicine, they always say that you can have the the demeanor of, like, being intuitive about things, where you go, I have an idea when you're talking to somebody. You can tell when you talk to you. So, when you're, when you're expressing yourself. So, let's say somebody comes in, and you know that they could have a problem with the, you know, breast implant illness. When you're, because you talked about your creative side, you like to be creative, and you, you start to see these, like, small signs and signals. Is there any indications, like, when a patient comes in, yes, they could have breast implant illness, but they could have like a, a predisposition to have like they had an old infection. They had old things that could cause a sickness to like a bound in their body. Do you ever like you think, okay, something's going on. I know this could be an issue. I need to refer them or test them for certain types of infection because many people say like, you know, I feel like I have the flu. I feel like I, I got my strep throat. Do you find any type of infections right. too with your intuitive, like when you're talking to people, do you ever see anything like that? Well, Yes, but it's not as common as you may think. Mm-hmm. The, probably, you know, there is some thought in terms of breast implants, since it's a sterile implant, right? Mm-hmm. It's in your body. There are entities that can cause infections of the breast implants, although a true overt infection of a breast implant is fairly rare. Mm-hmm. It usually only happens in the setting, you know, someone just had surgery and they're just not taking proper care of themselves and not being cautious the decision opens up. Or if it's, let's say, like a breast cancer reconstruction patient who had mm-hmm. radiation, so their tissue is not quite as healthy and their immune system is not quite as healthy as someone and they have an implant-based reconstruction, they may be more prone to like, let's say, a bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are other there are other infections that can happen, number one. Uh, I touched on it briefly, but capsular contracture, which is an exaggerated scar response of, of the capsule that's, that exists around the implant, mm-hmm. that we know that there's a bacteria, a bacterial etiology, right? We know that, that in a very high percentage of those cases, there are types of bacteria that can get into that space in between the implant and the capsule and not cause an overt infection like you would think of an overt infection like a tonsillitis or appendicitis or an abscess pimple what what have you but just cause what's called a slime layer which which then stimulates the capsule to tighten down around it so like oh, we, wow. know that there, we know that there's a bacterial cause for that and there are some surgeons who have studied this and actually done, as it relates to breast implant illness, have done actually swabs and sampled the capsule for various bacteria. Mm-hmm. Now, I years ago was was also doing that, but I got I got a very low yield, and maybe it's because I'm in private practice and you know I don't have a microbiology lab at my back and call. I mean, I can send stuff out, but it just it's not quite as efficient as if you're like at a university. Mm-hmm. Right there. Um, 
I got a really low yield. I know I know of a surgeon who, who got a very high yield, and he think, who thinks that eighty percent of patients who have BII have some sort of not infection but colonization with bacteria. Mm-hmm. So that's one yeah. thing. That, you know, like like infection of the device itself. I think what you're referring to maybe is systemic infection, uh, and we th- and with that we think of things like Epstein-Barr virus, um, Lyme disease, things mm-hmm. that kind of lay dormant in your body. You may not know, but have very mm-hmm. bizarre kind of presentations, and some of them have very similar presentations to some of the symptoms with BII. Yeah. So that's why I think there, you know, a lot of the naysayers, if you will, will say, well, maybe they had, you know, Epstein Barr virus when they were younger, and this is just a manifestation of mononucleosis. Mm-hmm. Or are you sure they didn't get Lyme disease and have they gone camping? You know, what part of the country did they? Uh, let's test them for Lyme disease, which is not easy to test for. Or let's test them for mold exposure. Um, and and there and um, those things do exist, but you know, I don't. They also don't cause all of these symptoms that we see with breast implant mm. illness necessarily. They may cause some of them, but certainly not all. Do you recommend, or do you do this in practice, that you always remove the capsule when you do an explant? I do now. Yes, I do now because you know there, there's several indications for removing the capsule. I think BII is one of them, at least from what we know. Now, some people don't agree with me. Some surgeons don't agree with me. There have been some studies going both ways, although, to be honest, I think both, both those studies are a little bit flawed and not very powerful in terms of the statistical analysis of it. But, um, you know, the, the thought is this. The, you have this specialized scar tissue that was formed around a foreign body. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one of those people who thinks that the implant necessarily is dissolving, disintegrating, and eluding its contents into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are a lot of people that say, you know, breast implants are toxic. We know they're made from arsenic and this chemical and that chemical and silicone and all this stuff, and it can't can't be good for you. And and while that may be true, that doesn't necessarily translate into Oh, I have this this plastic silicone shell in my body, and it's disintegrating into my bloodstream and causing these symptoms. Like you would think of lead or mercury toxicity, right? Which you can get from environmental exposure, and as those levels build up, can cause neurologic manifestations. Um, I, I don't. I, the 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 that that's that's part of it. I I think that the capsule can continue to serve as a nidus of inflammation, if you will, if you leave it behind. And mm-hmm. I, I, the reason I think that's because I've seen patients like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have seen a small number of patients who just had their implants removed by other doctors with the capsules left behind who did have significant improvement in their symptoms. Maybe it didn't completely resolve, but they, they had fairly significant improvement. Um, but still wanted their capsules and then I'd go back to get their capsules you know, down the road and they would feel even better. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, that begs the next question. Well, like, and again, people who don't, who don't believe in this will say that, well, it's really more dangerous 
it's more risky. There's more complications with taking the breast capsule out than if you leave it, leave it in. And so that's why we need to get to the bottom of like whether or not that helps or not. And that is true. And I tell this to every single patient, taking out the breast capsule does confer a slightly higher risk of bleeding postoperatively, you know, sensory nerve injury, mm -hmm. uh, scarring to the tissues, in theory, pneumothorax, where your lung can, you can get into the lung cavity and that can drop down, even though it's exceedingly rare. The, these risks, risks are higher if you're, if you're peeling up all this, all this tissue and creating this surgical space. Mm. It doesn't mean that it, it can't be done safely, and it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done safely. Um, I do it multiple times a week. And I think if it can be done, say, you know, that I'm sure there are cases where patients have so many previous operations and the scar tissue is so bad that it's probably not worth the risk. But for the overwhelming majority of people, that's not. Hey, Ancient Health listeners, Dr. Motley here. Let's talk about the incredible power of quantum energy and how it influences our vitality. Quantum energy is a life force that resides in every person and unit of matter. In our modern world, our quantum energy fields are constantly under siege from toxicities, stress, and electromagnetic frequencies. That's where Lila Quantum Tech comes in. Lila Quantum Tech offers groundbreaking solutions to enhance your quantum energy and to restore balance. Backed by rigorous research, Lila Quantum products have been proven effective in numerous studies. One remarkable study revealed that Lila quantum tech blocks boost ATP production by a staggering 20 to 29 percent. Others show blood and HRV improvements as well as wound healing acceleration of human cells by 85 to 100 percent. And here's the best part. Lila Quantum Tech is offering an exclusive 15 percent discount on your first order. Just visit leelaq.com and use the code ANCIENT at checkout. That's leelaq.com and code ANCIENT to unlock a healthier, more vibrant you. Okay. I mean, have you seen like with Doc, when it's like, let's say somebody, you know, was wanting to get it removed, the capsule and you say, well, it's not really worth the risk. Um, and, and people out there may be asking, did you find that if you did leave like some capsule in there and you say, well, the scar tissue's in there, are there like recommendations you give them and you've seen them like, like thrive, you know, even if they, you left it in there and you say it's not worth the risk. I mean, they're doing pretty well, like with their health and such, are there uh, other things they could do to like offset that like minerals and vitamins or anything of that sort if the capsule had to be left in or the scar tissue had to be left in the in the body i don't i don't i can't give you a specific answer about that just because it's way more complex than that mm -hmm. <laughs> um i you know if my personal feeling is that if someone's doing fun for most people, if they're, if they're doing fine, they're feeling fine, then they're doing fine and they're feeling fine. Mm -hmm. um, if they're not, then we need to investigate. Did, did their original surgeon take other capsules? Is there mm -hmm. something else? Is this, is it not the eye at all? Is there something else going on? Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, I mean, listen, I, I've had a handful of patients where I've taken other capsules and I'm pretty OCD about it and getting everything out and I've had and they just don't really significantly change after surgery that does happen in a small fraction of patients I can't explain why other than maybe there's some other entity going on yeah. Um, but yeah I mean I don't think it's as simple as saying well go take some gluten fine mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know that that's, I mean, is it going to hurt probably not but is it going to help I don't know mm -hmm. and um and uh, at, at the, and then the other issue, apart from that, is you know in terms of did another surgeon leave the capsules in? 
comes down to kind of the more recent uh, announcement by the FDA safety announcements of cancers that have shown up. And now this doesn't specifically have anything to do with BII. I'm just explaining in terms of the capsule removal. Um, cancers that, that are kind of implant-related cancers, not breast cancer, but they're ALCL, which is anaplastic lymphoma, and squamous cell, which is relatively new as of last fall, newly reported, I should say. These are two different types of cancers that we know have formed around implants in the capsule space. Now, the rate of that happening, the relative risk to any one individual is exceedingly low. I'm not mm. trying to sound an alarm at all because I'm not an alarmist, but I'm just mentioning it for completion's sake because some people are concerned about that. And, and in particular for patients who had certain types of textured uh, surface implants, because back in 2019, the FDA issued a safety warning and Allergan, which is one of the implant companies, voluntarily removed all of their biocell textured implants from market, took them off, didn't recommend removing them for patients that already had them, but took them off so that no more could be implanted. Hmm. And the reason behind that was the really high association between those specific implants and ALCL. So the FDA had looked at roughly a period of 10 years where they were following cases that had been reported to them of ALCL, this, this, this special lymphoma that developed in the capsule around breast implants, 85% give or take were had some exposure to and to allergens texture. So, you know, there's BII, but BII can happen with saline implants, smooth, smooth textured, and I've seen it pretty much with with implants from all of the major implant companies in the U.S. Mm. Um, and then there's these other much more rare but obviously scarier um, possibilities of. Uh, ALCL and squamous cell carcinoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are those are the implants that I had. The allergen textured. I remember getting a letter in the mail too, and it was like, "Hey, just wanted to let you know, we're." Uh... Uh, what What did your letter say? I'm curious because yeah, I I, I never put in a pair of those in my career because that's another that's a whole other conversation. But yeah. Um, what did they say? What did that letter say? Yeah, it, it. I mean, almost exactly what you paraphrased, which is really just, you know, no need to worry. These are no long, you know, we've, the evidence or studies, you know, have shown that, you know, there is this very, very small percentage that, you know, this specific type of implant because of the textured nature and, and just the way that it's manufactured has been associated with, you know, BIA, ALCL, and, you know, but there's no need to explant unless you have, you know, a proclivity for cancer or, you know, have some type of condition that would be more complex or alarming. But yeah, I did. I even saved it. And I think, <laughs> I think it's with my implants, which, you know, I still have in a biohazard bag. I don't know if I'm just saving those for like the Smithsonian. They're like an artifact. <laughs> <laughs> but, you didn't put them in a shadow box. You should put them in a shadow box with a letter, like like our I should. American flag. Yeah. I know. You know, that's that's a really that's a good idea. Yeah. Well, my husband's like, I've spent so much money on him. I feel like I need to. You know, it's like a giant check just sitting on the wall between the implant, <laughs> the explant, and everything. It's like, but you, you anyway, could, you could turn it into a piece of artwork for your home. 
That's true. <laughs> I, I would love for the kids to share with all their friends. <laughs> yeah. The kids come over and they're like, what's that on the wall? I'm like, oh, those are mom's boobs. <laughs> they were. <laughs> you know, that's that. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I, I've that's a good different conversation. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, you know, our friends here, they know nothing's off the table with me. So <laughs> it wouldn't surprise them. Oh, I mean, with that, though, I mean, like with the amount of like, like the litigation, dog, do you find that there are certain, I mean, okay, I don't want to like zero out any company. I'm saying, do you find that there are certain types of implants or certain types of material that work better for the body in general? Or like if somebody was thinking, I want to get implants, what would you suggest like any company or like certain Chris, types? We're of not advocating for implants. I'm not advocating. I'm just saying there's yeah. going to be people okay, ask that. I, I mean, there's people that come into my office, they ask, and I'm like, I don't know anything about that. It's, per se. it's a fair question. And for, a, you know, there was a period of time where, where I was taking care of breast implant illness patients where I was still doing like some revision implant cases and still like taking out old ones and putting in new ones. And I finally, you know, last year stopped doing that. It just didn't seem right to me anymore. Uh, but that's a fair question. And uh, I don't know that I have the uh, exact correct answer for you, but but I will say that I, I've seen, I, I don't think it's necessarily specific to the implant type. Mm -hmm. All breast implants, the, the material in the shell is the same. It's mm -hmm. still, even if the filling is saline versus silicone, mm -hmm. that we talked before about like, you know, in, indications for taking out the capsule, there are, you know, apart from just being symptomatic from BI, there are, there are situations where capsules are contracted. There are situations where they're completely calcified or replaced with calcium. There are situations, and I've had a handful of these where there's like old hematoma that caused like this thick capsule um, that had been sitting in there for years. Mm. Uh, and then probably more specific to silicone implants is is when you have so the you know the big difference between the one of the big differences between saline and silicone implants is that when if they rupture right so if you rupture mm -hmm. a silicone implant for the most part people get a flat tire um the, the saline leaks out into your body your body absorbs it and you just left primarily just the shell um silicone implants on the other hand especially the newer generation ones where it's more, more like a run flat tire, right? So you get, a, if you can, you can get a leak or a tear in the shell and it still holds its shape because the silicone is really like, like a firm tofu consistency and it doesn't just leak all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now that's one thing. The other thing is, is that silicone implants, even when, um, even the newer generation of silicone implants, even when they're not ruptured, when you can't find a macroscopically identifiable hole in the shell, mm -hmm. you can get what's known as silicone gel bleed. And what that is, is, you know, you have this implant, it's at, you know, body temperature 98.6 for X number of years, and the silicone can per permeate through the shell into the capsule space and can create what's called a silicone granuloma reaction which is like this kind of cobblestone uh, appearance that you see on the, on the inner lining of the capsule. Mm -hmm. um, when they rupture, that silicone material can actually, even though the capsule's 
a kind of a closed entity. It, the, the silicon material can make its way through the capsule, and I've seen it in the extra capsular space going into the breast tissue and can create these kind of like rubbery nodules, which are really scary if you're a woman and you feel like there's a big nodule outside of your implant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that's when you get that silicone reaction, it's like kind of embedded within the wall of the capsule. Like those capsules should not stay in. You know, even if they've been in for a while, they shouldn't stay in, even whether or not you're symptomatic for the Yeah. I have to ask this because the ladies of Instagram, they want to know. And I, and if I don't ask, then they'll all be so upset with me. But a lot of women are thinking in terms of, okay, if implants are off the table, maybe there's too much risk there. I'm not willing to, not willing to go down that road, but I've had some kids breastfed some babies, things just don't look the way they used to. What are, what's your experience with women that are doing lifts and that are doing fat transfers? Because I get that question all the time. Like, can I just do a fat transfer? Is there any downside? Is there any risk? Do you see women have negative outcomes in going that route? That is a great question. That's probably my favorite question today. <laughs> the, the answer is yes. And let me explain. There are two separate issues, fat transfer and breast lift. I have a very low threshold for doing breast lifts on my explant patients. Why? Because I think most people need it. What women don't explain, and this is kind of part of my kind of uh, talk with everybody when they come in as a new consult, women a lot of women don't realize you put an implant in, whether it's 200, 300, 400, 700, obviously the bigger the implant, the more of a stretch you're gonna get. But the, those implants stretch out your breast tissue and stretch out the skin envelope of the breast tissue 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And now if you have someone who's young and they maybe they haven't been pregnant or breastfed or, or maybe the implant hasn't been in that long, and their skin integrity is good. They have good elasticity in the skin. They don't have a lot of stretch marks. You might be able to take out that implant and do nothing else, right? Because they, their breast hasn't really aged. It hasn't been put through the ringer, and they don't really have any sagging. And sometimes, in and this this is true in my practice too. I mean, in a smaller percentage of, of patients, sometimes you can just take the implant and that out and do nothing else. They don't need fat transfer because they have enough in their own tissue. They don't need a lift because they have no sag. Mm-hmm. But the overwhelming majority of my patients need and or want a breast lift to help kind of rejuvenate the breast after I take everything out. The, the overwhelming majority of patients have too much skin. Mm-hmm. So whereas, and even if they don't necessarily look like they have a lot of sagging with the implant in, as soon as you take that implant out, the volume decreases. And, and, and a lot of this has to do with like how much of their own breast tissue they have versus how big is the implant, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, and I, and I tell everyone, you know, your result really has a lot to do with how much breast tissue you have. The more of your own breast tissue you have, the better your breast is going to look when I'm done. Because if I can do a breast lift, great. I mean, I have so many patients who I personally, I think they take out their implants to a breast lift and their breasts look 10 times better than they did with the implants and mm-hmm. the before surgery, um, I mean, if, if you think about it, you're taking, and, and then when I do a lift, I'm not really removing 
breast tissue and really primarily just getting rid of extra skin. So I'm taking that and then I'm reshaping the breast. I also take the, that opportunity, um, and this is probably a, a conversation for another day, but I'll take that opportunity when I do a breast lift to repair the pec muscle because most women who have implants have them under the pec muscle. In other words, their surgeon lifted up that muscle and or cut it uh, in order to accommodate this, this implant. And so, and, and, and a lot of those women, you, you can kind of see that when they, when they, we call it an animation deformity. If you, if they, if you're standing naked in front of the mirror and you sort of flex the pec muscle, you can kind of see it push the implant aside. Wow. So I'll like to take that tissue, that tissue that for someone who's breastfed three kids, their breast is kind of hanging on their abdomen. I'll take, get rid of the extra skin, take that tissue and, and tack it up to the pec muscle to keep the pec muscle down, keep it from window shading up and also get that tissue off of the abdomen and into the breast where it belongs. And it sort of auto augments the breast with your own tissue. So you, I'm, I'm taking, you know, this much breast tissue and compacting it into a smaller space, which affords me the opportunity to make it look better. And it, it's obviously a smaller, perkier breast mound that's mm -hmm. usually more proportionate to the chest wall. And so that's that's kind of the breast lift portion of it. Fat transfer is great, but totally different, right? So fat transfer is if someone after I'm done, whether whether I do a lift or not, after they've healed, if they don't have enough volume and they want more volume, you're basically doing I do a low pressure liposuction. Patients, the biggest problem is patients who need it the most don't have enough fat. So sometimes you got to really hunt for it. But we'll take what the patients will give me, take that fat in the operating room sterilely, process it, and then re-inject it into the breast tissue to add volume. Now, for some patients, they have enough breast tissue, but maybe they have like a little contour deformity or a little indentation as a result of the implant kind of pushing through the tissue over years. Um, now, sometimes I can fix that with the breast lift and sometimes you can't. I mean, if there's no tissue there, I, I can't do it. And I've had patients where same patient, same breast implant, but it's sat differently and I do a lift on one side and one side's perfect and the other side they have like a little contour. So like, so for that, fat grafting is great because I can go back and do my, what I call post-production six, 12 <laughs> months later, come back and sort of break up the scar tissue and put a little bit of fat in there and try to contour it to give to round out the profile of the breast. Now, there's different philosophies on this. I personally don't like to do it at the same time that I do uh, take out the implant capsule, especially if I'm doing a breast lift. I have done it at the same time as when I'm doing just, just an explant and capsulectomy. Um, but, and this kind of goes back to the our first set of questions. Most patients who present with me are extraordinarily inflamed swollen and have a fair amount of fluid retention and so the the breast tissue likewise is inflamed and swollen and so i just think that it's not a great time to be fat grafting because when you when you fat graft you're you're basically taking it from one area washing washing away the dead cells and then re-injecting it and expecting your body to grow new blood vessels into that fat for it to survive. Because if, mm. if, you, if your body doesn't do that, the, the graft, fat graft will just kind of melt away and absorb or harden and become little nodules. 
uh, a fat process, which is not fun either. Both are risks of fat grafting. So there's that. And then even if, even if someone does a breast, even if I do a breast lift on someone at the same time that I'm explaining them, I don't like to, I don't like to fat graft. A, I think the percentage of fat take is much lower. Um, B, it doesn't, doesn't afford me the opportunity to kind of let everything heal and see where it, we need the, the volume the most. Um, but the other, the other thing is I, I think it's a little too risky in terms of potentially harming the blood flow to the nipple and areola when I'm doing a breast lift, right? Because when, when, I'm, when I'm doing a breast lift, I'm pretty aggressive rearranging the breast tissue and you're counting an, instead of the normal, let's say six arteries that go to a nipple. Uh, when you're doing a breast lift, you're counting on maybe two of those to keep everything alive. And then if you take fat and start, you know, putting under pressure, putting it around that residual artery band, you can knock it off. And so I'm not willing to do that. So I just tell patients I'd rather do it like six, nine, 12 months after once everything's kind of healed and softened. Um, and, and, you know, and some people do great with that. And some people, I'll see them back in six months. They're like, I thought I was going to need fat transfer, but I don't need it. So I just mm -hmm. save them an operation. So, you know, not everyone needs it. And, um, and some just need a tiny, I think that I think they're both great operations. They both can have complications as we talked about, you know, specific to fat grafting, the big thing is the graft may not take. So that's, that's not a harmful thing, but it's kind of, you know, upsetting if you, if you had all your belts away. So obviously uh, fat's hormonally receptive, uh, responsive rather, and also will be affected by changes in weight. So if I, if, if I do fat grafting on someone and they're like, oh, I decided to get, you know, join the gym and I'm eating healthy now and then they drop 20 pounds, that fat's just going to melt away. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, there are some, a lot of nuances to it. Uh, apart from that, you got to be careful. You got to have a good radiologist when you're getting your annual screenings because a good radiologist will be able to tell like, well, this is a calcification for back grafting versus this is like a malignant calcification that could indicate cancer. Uh, or this is, you know, this looks like fat necrosis versus, you know, being something more sinister. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, that's so good. Cause I, I've definitely gotten that question so many times. I didn't have a lift or fat transfer or anything, but I was also like very compromised. So for me, it was just like, let's just, let's just get yeah, them out. Right. And, and there's something to be said for that because if you then are feeling better a year later, you're going to yeah. do much better having a lift or having mm -hmm. a fat, you know, having fat, well, especially fat grafting. I mean, I think most people do well with a lift either way, as long as you do it right. Um, but yeah, I mean, not everyone is going to tolerate that whole operation at one time or they don't want to. And that's not, yeah. that's not, that's not unreasonable at all. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. It is. I love this. This has been, this is a fun little conversation. Cause I, you know, I, I, my experience was back in 2019, but you know, there's so many women that are exploring this option and they're kind of looking at like, what's, what's the cost to benefit ratio? Like, you know, you got to really like vet out what, what, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and then, you know, what it's going to cost you. Like it, you know, is it going to come at the expense of your health? And those are like very real questions, but there are always, you know, people looking for alternatives of, okay, well, if I'm not going to commit to an implant, what does a lift look like? And, you know, is that, right. does that have the same risk? So 
Oh, I, I've always told patients, if you don't need a breast implant, even even back when I was putting them in, if you don't need a breast implant, don't put it in because there's just so many things that can go wrong. I mean, even when everything goes right, there can be things that go wrong, right? Uh, and as a rule, I, I would always tell patients, you know, if, if they thought they needed a lift, well, like, how do you feel when you have your bra? Like, do you have enough breast tissue to fill up your bra? And if you do, you don't need an implant, right? Or fat, or fat but like you know, they take off the bra and like they're completely sagging down. That's a perfect candidate for a lift, and mm. I do primary lifts all the time. Uh, yeah. I think it's a great operation. It's it, it, it's it's like a home run most of the time. Mm. So um, and so I do I do a lot in concert with X Point just because I think people need it. It's also it also makes the exposure a little bit easier. But I also do them primarily, and now I'm doing a lot more of primary breast augmentation with fat, just with fat transfer, which, which works. I mean, it's not, you're not going to get the same volume probably that you would get with an implant. Um, but, you know, as, I think as long as the patient understands that and is okay with it, I have no problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. This is great, great insight, doc. I think that when people like see that there are some, you know, alternatives you know and so like to like if they're thinking about getting a breast implant that uh, somebody like it with your expertise can actually uh, guide them and seeing if they do you know if they're a candidate for it or not but using this like with the fat cell uh, implantation so this has been really eye-opening i'm serious i have a lot of patients doc that come in and they ask me about these things even though i do like chinese medicine stuff they'll ask me about this like does it bother me? i'm like I'm probably not the guy to ask. So you know, like you don't have herbs to make their breasts bigger. Like you know, and I'm like, you know, go, we need to listen to the podcast. You know, just <laughs> talk to Doctor Kevin. I, I'm just gonna leave it at that. Okay, just leave it at that. But I mean, this has really been eye opening, Doc. I really love like your insight, and I like how you you explain it, and you, you like I love your level balance explanation of this, and I we really appreciate it. this. Has been great. Awesome. Yeah. I I think uh, if you're listening and you've got, you know, questions, definitely check out Dr. Brenner's podcast as well, because I'm sure I know that there's so many incredible conversations around a lot more than just what we've talked about today, but do your due diligence, you know, with, you know, if you're taught, if you have implants and you're like, this is a new conversation, but you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together of your health, really talk to different surgeons. I, I went through this myself, kind of like interviewing and you kind of have to find like, your person. And so I think what you said earlier about like really having this questionnaire and really you, you said you spend so much time with people. And I think that that's, that's one area that often gets overlooked. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. And I, I like what you just said, like, know your person. You have to, I think it's just as important that, that I like my patient and think that I can help them as it is that the patient likes me and thinks that I can help them. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, it does. Like, I mean, you have to, you have to jive with your surgeon, or you should jive with your surgeon, because yeah. if you don't, you're just asking for problems down the road. Totally. Um, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I have listen. I, not everyone. I, I see a ton of new patients every consult. Every you know, twice a week, we do we do like full day consults. Not everyone is the right fit for me, and nor am I the right fit for everybody. But I but I think if I can help someone and and they they're happy with it and they like my plan and I think I can do a good job of it. I mean, you know, any day. Mm. Doc, this has been great. 
Go ahead, uh, go ahead, Char, yes. sorry. <laughs> so much respect for what you're doing and just empowering and acknowledging so many people as they're on their journey. Because I think that just having compassion for people as they're trying to figure it out when they're frustrated, but also really trying to explore like, hey, like, let me link arms with you and, and see if we can get there together. And so I have the utmost respect for your work. And I'm going to for sure be able to send so many people to you because that's probably one of the number one questions I always get asked is like, who should I go see? And I mean, these women will fly all over the place to go, you know, have somebody. They, they do. It's crazy. Thank, thank you for saying that. I, I, that has gone very well. That's very well appreciated and received. But I mean, it's true. I mean, you have to listen to your patients. And there's, I hear so many surgeons who just don't. <laughs> and I don't, I don't understand why. Maybe they're just too busy. But I mean, I would not have a practice were it not for my patients. And every surgeon wouldn't have a practice were it not for the patient. So if the patient yeah. isn't at the center of everything that you do, there's no point in, in being a surgeon or a doctor or whatever kind of practitioner that you are, right? I mean, if your patients are where it's at. Yeah. And so if, you, if you're not listening to them, that's like rule number one is listen to them, figure out what's going on, make a diagnosis, and then make a treatment plan. Yeah. Med school yeah. one-on-one. I mean, Dr. Brenner's got it, the MD, and he like gets the big picture of all of it. That's not, that's not the case for so many people. Not so though. many. Yes, Doc. I mean, it's good. No names. No names. I'm not making <laughs> we, we won't go scorched earth or anything. That's we're not right. going to, we're not going to just, you know, but I, all doctors are bad. There's that's lots true. of great doctors out you're representing the small minority and you do it so well. So I'm going to champion that for you. Thank you. And I have lots of referrals to other specialists who are also great if anyone ever needs them. So, so oh, good. Man. Well, where can people find you? Give us the rundown of all the places that you are so that people can get more educated on you, your practice, where they can find some of your resources. We'd love to share all of that. So, okay. So first of all, I'm in Los Angeles. My, my office is in Beverly Hills. We do see patients from all over the country and all over the world. Um, so don't I don't want you to feel like if you're in somewhere where you don't think there's a plastic surgeon near you, give us a call. I do virtual consults initially just to kind of like, feel things out for patients to see, like, do I think I can help them and point them in the right direction? So just because you do a virtual consult doesn't mean you have to fly out here for surgery, although we do that all the time. So if you're, you know, if you're out of state, my office is, is adept at coordinating for patients. Um, in terms of how to reach me, the best thing, I always tell everybody, the best thing is to just call me on the phone, not me specifically, not my cell phone, but the office line, which is 310-777-5400. Um, you can always get a hold of someone, leave a message, and my, my staff will get back to you. That's the best thing. I'm also obviously online at kevinbrennermd.com. Um, my Instagram, I, I do have lots of people kind of helping with the Instagram, but we try to get to every question and inquiry and whatnot. It's not the most, um, it's not the most expedient way of getting into my office because I, I just don't check it that often, but I do get back to people eventually on Instagram and that's Kevin Brenner MD. So you can, you can DM me on Instagram, but probably the best, the best thing is either go to my website and fill out a contact form there or just call the office and we can help you from there. 
That's been great, Doc. Well, we really appreciate you having having you on here. We really appreciate you coming on and informing us all. And uh, we, we we encourage everybody, if you have any questions, get in contact with Dr. Kevin and check out his website, check out his Instagram feed. And uh, from all of us here at the Institute, Doc, we really thank you. And for everybody out there, just to keep, please, if you have anybody, anybody with any questions about this, listen to this podcast and refer to Dr. Kevin. Thanks, Doc. Thanks so much. Keep, uh, keep putting the word out there. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. See you. Hey, Dr. Axe here. I want to say thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like and subscribe to the show so you don't miss a thing. Also, if you're in search of more natural health content, you can follow us at Health Institute on Instagram or subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the show notes below. Hey, thanks a lot and have a blessed week.